mission. Is it necessary? Now, I, I, I really struggled with whether we would... Uh, I almost was going to do a message on an exclusive Christmas. And I just, as I was thinking about the shepherds and how God revealed himself to them and the wise men and how he revealed himself to them, I just realized practically the entire Christmas story really shows what we've been trying to learn through this series, that God uh, reveals himself through special revelation. Think of the wise men, the star that he revealed in the sky, and, and where, did it re- where did it lead them? To Jesus Christ, personal, direct, incarnate. Think about the shepherds. Where did the angelic, uh, uh, angelic messengers, where did, it, where did they lead the shepherds? to Jesus Christ. And all of that took place up in the heavens. It took place up in the sky. But God used special revelation to lead people to a saving knowledge. But I knew if I did that, I wouldn't have, I, I, we'd come back to this after we got back from, from Christmas. And, and it's just time to put a period and an ending point on this series. And I want to do it with this question. Missions, is it necessary? Look at uh, the quote I have at the top of your notes from John Piper, and I'll kind of give you the context for today's uh, lesson. Those who affirm that people who today have no access to the gospel may nevertheless be saved without knowing Jesus try to argue that this idea enhances our motivation to evangelize the lost. And that's what we're asking. Missions, is it necessary if inclusivism is true and those who have never heard can be saved by general revelation, then why give to missions? Why go on missions? Why risk even witnessing to practically anybody? Because everybody has access to that. And it even comes across when you read inclusives, inclusivists as though everybody's already saved. So that just does what? Well, it, it, it cuts the nerve cord of missions. And notice what Piper goes on to say. It is a futile effort. The arguments fall apart as you pick them up. The abandonment of the universal necessity of hearing the gospel for salvation does indeed diminish the urgency of the work of evangelization. And I say again that this is not the main reason for affirming the necessity of hearing and believing the gospel for salvation. The main reason is that the Bible teaches it, and therefore the good of man and the glory of God are most honored by it. What he's saying is this, just because exclusivism, which says everybody must hear the name of Jesus, produces an urgency to missions, that doesn't make it true. Okay, that doesn't make it true, but because it's true... It does make missions urgent, and that's what we're examining. So let's review as we on this last series. What was this series all about? Three questions in one. We've been tra- at looking at the one question, is Jesus the only way to salvation? And we said when you ask, is Jesus the only way to salvation, you're really asking three questions. The first was, will anyone experience eternal conscience torment under God's wrath in hell? And uh, universalism says what? No, no, everyone, including the devil and his legions of demons, will one day be saved. People may be doomed now and in hell now, but they will eventually all be saved. Annihilationism says what to that question? No, 
Immortality is a conditional gift given to only those who are saved. Unbelievers will cease to exist on the day of judgment. They will not experience eternal conscious torment under God's wrath in hell. Popular belief says what? Ah, you know, it says maybe. Maybe. A lot of people say no, but actually uh, 70%, a Gallup poll in 2001 said 70% of Americans believe in hell. It's it, it goes like this. Well, maybe people will do that, but I'm not going there, nor are any of my friends or family. And uh, Rick, he, he took a poll among those he worked. Was it at lunch? A little break time. And what you what you what you do? Well, what'd you ask? I mean, set us up. <laughs> well, you know that all brought up. There you go. All right, right there in the break room at work. Hey, let's just take a poll. How many of you believe in hell? All hands go up. How many of you know someone who's in hell? All hands go up, except for the no good boyfriend. That's the popular belief. Jesus says, though, what to that question? Will anyone experience eternal conscious torment? Yes, and I love people enough to come to earth, warn them about it with conviction and compassion, and offer myself as the only way out of it. Again, that's the message of Christmas. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come for the lights, the presents. He didn't come for everybody to feel good for a month or for some people to feel really depressed for a month. He came with that message. Now, second question, is the work of Jesus necessary for salvation? Okay, they're going to experience hell, but how do you get out of hell? Is the work of Jesus necessary? Pluralism says what to that question? No, there are many paths to God. God has many faces. It's the Burger King view of religion. Have it your way. All roads lead to God. But Jesus says what to that question? Am I necessary? What does he say? Yes, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The third question is the one we spent the most time on, and that's it. If, if hell's real and Jesus is necessary, is conscious faith in Jesus necessary for salvation? And inclusivism says what? No. Good. I hope you know that. Those who have never heard of Jesus but sincerely respond in faith to God based on the light that they have will be saved on the basis of work. Jesus is necessary. On the work of Jesus. His work is necessary, but you don't have to know him. There's a wideness to God's mercy for those who have never heard through no fault of their own. But what does Jesus say? Is conscious faith necessary in me? What does he say? He says, yes, yes, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. 
And he goes on and, and he says in another place, Matthew 20, So the last will be first and the first are last. For many are called, but few are chosen. But perhaps John 3.36 says it best. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Already abides. Everyone who does not believe in Jesus at this precise moment, the wrath of God always already abides on them. And Peter agreed, because in Acts 4.32, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. And so there's our three questions. Now, here's what we want to look at this morning. How you answer the three-in-one question, how you answer what we just went through, directly impacts your view of missional living. And by missional living, I mean evangelizing those in the break room, those you live around, and missions, getting the gospel out to the whole world. So missional living is, I'm a missionary 24-7, and I partner with missionaries, and I am a missionary in the workplace, in the neighborhood. Now, how you answer these three-in-one questions impacts your view of that. Let's, let's go back to hell. If hell is not real conscious torment forever, then how are you going to view uh, other people? You're going to say, hey, hell? No. Okay, no. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die and you no longer exist, or eventually you'll be saved. Either way, party up, because it's not going to matter. You're either going to be extinct or you'll eventually be safe. So live any way you want. But if you say hell, yes there is a hell, then we need to warn them now before it's too late. Amen? What about Jesus? And the question, is Jesus necessary? If you say no, then you're going to say, no, no big deal. No need to evangelize or be missional. Why? Because there are many ways to God. They will find their own way and get on their own path eventually. I don't have to worry about that. There's many paths out there. I don't have to tell them my path. But if you say, yes, Jesus is necessary, we need to exalt the name that is above every name and be bold in sharing Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. One of the greatest benefits of this series for me has been when we go directly upstairs from listening to these lessons and seeing some of the great choruses that our worship team leads us in that talk about the name of Jesus. I don't sing those the same. I'm worshiping more. I'm exalting him greater because that name is the name, the name that everyone needs to know, the name of my Savior, the name of my Lord. I hope it's increased your worship. But what about faith? If you say, well, faith in Jesus, that's not necessary. He'll save them some other way. Well, the inclusivist claim, the inclusivists actually say, no, there's still a need for missions. Now, this is, this is the irony of this lesson. Inclusive, the inclusivist argument is that, hey, you don't have to have conscious faith in Jesus to be saved. You can look at the stars. You can listen to your conscience. You can even see Jesus through the conflicting world's religions and be saved. And then they say, but you still need to be involved in missions. Well, that kind of sounds weird. That, that doesn't make sense. And yet, if we say, yes, faith is necessary, 
It's an exclusive uh, call to Christ and everybody has to hear about him and then choose to respond. Then we need to, we, we, we see missions is vital and necessary because there are billions who have not heard and they will not hear any other way. So here's what we want to look at. Are the inclusivists right that you can be an inclusivist and still be eager and, and committed to missions and evangelism? Or does, as the first point says here, inclusivism cuts the nerve cord of missional living? I would put forth to you that inclusive, the inclusive view will dampen your view of missions it will decrease your burden to get the gospel out because if they can be saved apart from hearing about Jesus, you're just not going to be as motivated. And it cuts your nerve cord. Now, when your nerve cord to your hand is cut, what is your hand able to do? Nothing. It, it, it renders it inactive. It renders it unable to lay hold of. And what I'm saying to you today is that inclusivism cuts the nerve cord of missional living. Now, you say... Why is that important to me? Before we dive into this, why is this important to me? I'm not an inclusivist. Well, first of all, I would challenge you to, to think back over this, this series. And have you been challenged? Have you seen some inclusive thinking through this series? And I know some of you have because you've shared that with me, and that's been such a blessing. So you don't have to know what you are to be that, Okay. You may not know how your thinking is inclusive, but we can think that way. And let me tell you this, that if we do think that somehow there's exception, somehow God will save people apart from hearing the name of Jesus Christ, then we will not be nearly, nearly as motivated. We will not take the risk. We will not be as bold for the gospel if we think, Somehow, God will do it some other way. And so that's what we want to tackle. I think that inclusivism cuts the nerve cord. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to question the arguments by inclusivists that inclusivism actually increases motivation for mission. So there's, a, a, in one of the uh, books I read to study for this and to prepare for this, there was an inclusivist that presented these four arguments and said, look, what I believe does not dampen missions, it actually enhances the motivation. So let's look at his arguments, and uh, these might not be true of all people that hold this position, but it's certainly true of this individual, and, and it's, it's overall true of, of, of people that hold this position. So let's take a look at it. Number one, here's the first question. Does inclusivism motivate us to speak boldly, take risks, and face opposition and endure hardship in fulfilling the Great Commission. Does inclusivism motivate us to speak boldly, take risks, face opposition, and endure hardship in fulfilling the Great Commission? The inclusivist assumes that in Acts 18.9, I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts 18.9. He, he, he's going to base his argument on Acts 18.9. And so look at Acts 18.9. Here's what he assumes out of Acts 18.9. There's a phrase in this that said where God is in a vision through special revelation. God is speaking to the Apostle Paul, who's on his missionary journeys. 
and he's just come out of Athens and a couple other places where as soon as he preached, there were people that were saved, but there was great opposition to the point that he was ran out of town. So here, you know, he's having just a great short-term missions trip. You know, he's going and he preaches and then he gets run out of town. So he goes to the next place and he preaches and he gets run out of town. Now, what would that do to you, to your motivation level? It discouragement. What would you want to do? Quit. What would you be thinking about the next place you were going? Okay, now how soon am I going to kicked out of this? And and you know, in some in some of these places, he's stoned and left for dead outside. So we're, this isn't any. You know, this isn't like the stuff we get all scared about. Hey, the guys in the break room are going to make fun of me. No, we're talking about stoning. Okay, these are some of the things that that did happen in his life. Well, here's what God says to him. Look at uh, Acts 18, 9. We'll just look at this, uh, look at 9 through 11. Now, the Lord spoke to, to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. And here's why. For I have many people in this city. For I have many people in this city and here's what the inclusivist says from this verse he says look inclusivism uh, motivates you for greater evangelism and take risks risk and everything because as soon as god said this to paul look at verse 11 and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of god among them now here's what the inclusivist assumes he assumes that that phrase i have many people in the city means what Terry, you got it. What? Uh, for an inclusivist, it would mean what? They're already saved. The fact that he says, I have many people. Hey, don't worry, Paul. These guys have been looking at general revelation. They've been looking at their conscience. They've been listening. They've been listening to the message through the stars. There's many people in this city who are saved. So don't get discouraged. They're already saved. That's what he's arguing. But is that what this verse means? Well, let's take a look. Does inclusivism motivate us to speak boldly, take risks, face opposition, endure hardship? My answer, based on the Bible, would be no. Now, listen, if I'm an inclusivist, if Paul was an inclusivist, and you've been getting beat up for preaching the gospel, and you're headed into a new city where you're anticipating more persecution, and God says to you, don't worry, Paul, I have many people there. They're already saved by general revelation. Now, what would you do? What would you think? What would I think? Skip that town then. You already got many people there. Sounds like you got more people than I have in the last few towns from preaching. So why would I want to go get beat up for Jesus when you've already got many people saved there without me preaching? Are you? With, am, I, am I the only one that, I mean, I'm not going to be motivated to go there. Okay, but I say no, because here's what that verse really means. God's sovereign election and special revelation to preach the gospel is what motivates Paul to endure persecution and boldly preach the gospel. What got him to stay there a year and a half? That is the longest he ever stayed in any one place except Ephesus, where he stayed three years. What got him to stay for a year and a half, preaching in spite of opposition and in spite of all of this 
opposition he had previously felt was God's sovereign election of those who would be saved and the special revelation directed to him that, hey, you need to go. Now, let's take a look. The verses before and after this phrase, and in fact, the entire book of Acts, points to a balance between God's sovereign election and human responsibility to preach and believe the gospel to be saved. Notice what happens here. In verses 9 through 11, he says, don't be afraid, in verse 9, but speak and do not keep silent. He, he, he comes to Paul and he gives him special revelation and says, look, you're supposed to speak. In, in spite of the discouragement, in spite of the defeat, you're still to speak. And then he says, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Then he stays there a year and six months. So let's look in your notes. God tells Paul to be bold to preach the gospel for three reasons. First is God's presence. I am with you. You know what that reminds me of? The Great Commission. After giving the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. What motivated Paul was not thinking that people were already saved, but that God was with him no matter what he went through. God's presence. Listen, that's as true for you when you're witness. I am with you. Be bold and speak. I am with you. Number two, God's protection. The second thing that motivated Paul to be bold and take risks was God's protection. He says, no one will attack you to hurt you. He was attacked. And he was, uh, you know, he was opposed, but he, he said, look, I'm going to protect you. I, I, I'm telling you ahead of, ahead of time, don't get scared. I'm going to protect you. Now, that, that's not an overall promise to all of us, but it was a specific promise to Paul. But notice the, the third thing that I think was the most motivating and is the most uh, amazing is God's predestination. God's predestination, or you could say God's predetermining. Um, God's election, God's choice. I don't care how you say it, it, it. It's what he's saying there. I have many people who I have chosen to be saved by the means of hearing the gospel and placing their faith in him. See, he says, go and preach for I have many people, not meaning they're already saved, but what is he saying? They need to be saved. They will be saved for I have chosen them, but how are they going to be saved? By you being obedient and preaching the gospel to them. Isn't that awesome? So, it, it, so it's the opposite of inclusivism. It's exclusivism. These people will not be saved apart from you preaching the gospel. And yet I am sovereign and I, have already, I already know who they are. And I already know what's going to happen. But I don't do it without you. Now I don't know what greater motivation you could get than to think God's with me. God's going to protect me, and God's going to give me success in my evangelism mission. Listen, the reason Paul spoke boldly, took risks, faced opposition, and endured hardship was not because people were already saved apart from Jesus, but because they must be saved through Jesus, and yet a sovereign God secured their salvation ahead of time. You want me to explain that? I can't. God doesn't explain it here. He just states it. And Paul takes it, and he's motivated by it. Now, listen, uh, here's what uh, John MacArthur says on this note. He says, here it is clear that some people belong to the Lord who are not yet saved. 
and they will not be saved without the preaching of the gospel. Paul defined his preaching as having the purpose of bringing the elect to faith. We don't know who they are. We just know they're out there. How are we going to know who they are? Yeah, by preaching the gospel is how we're going to ultimately know. We're going to preach the gospel, and those that respond in faith and, and persevere in their faith to the end, they are the saved. And that's great. And God did it through me, and he gets all the glory. Listen, here's even what John Wesley, who was certainly not a uh, Calvinist, said this, For I have much people in this city. Here's his comment. Uh, God prophetically calls them that afterward believed. He prophetically calls them that afterward believed. In other words, God knew who was going to be saved, and he knew he was going to happen through the gospel. Now listen. Election, predestination, proclamation of the gospel go hand. You get it in your head, when I get it in my heart, that it's God who is chosen and elected people and my goal is to go there and proclaim the gospel then all the pressure is off of me and it's on who it's on god to follow through on what he said it's on them to respond the pressure is off of me as a messenger i don't have to worry what if i don't say it right what if i get it all messed up what if they ask me a question that i don't know all that pressure is off why because i i just need to be obedient and share the gospel the best that I can, getting training, improving, evaluating, how did that go, where could I improve? I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying it's not dependent on us. God has many people in this city, Kansas City, who are his people. And he has many people at your work who are his people but you're not going to know it and they're not going to get saved apart from you and I sharing that gospel message. And so the bottom line is this, working in someone's heart to prepare them to respond to the gospel is very different from working in the heart apart from the gospel to save them. You see, the inclusivist looks at that verse and says, God has worked in their heart apart from the gospel to save them. You ought to be more motivated now to witness to them. I don't get it. When in fact, preparing to work in someone's heart so that they will respond when I share the gospel, now that is motivating because the sovereign God is at work. Okay, second argument. Does inclusivism renew our commitment to reach every individual with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does the inclusive view renew our commitment to reach every individual? One inclusivist thinks it does. Now, here's what he says. He argues that since the majority have not responded to general revelation, they need to be confronted by the claims of Jesus. So here's what this guy thinks. There are some people who are saved by general revelation, but since the majority reject that, we ought to still be motivated to share Jesus with those because they've already, because the majority reject the, the uh, revelation that comes through conscience, creation, the stars. Well, this seems like an odd way to argue. Here's what I hear him saying. Since some are saved, since some are saved apart from special revelation, you will be more motivated to share special revelation with the rest. Okay, since some are saved, you ought to get really excited about 
trying to save the rest. Well, I don't know. This just kind of begs the question for me. The question is this, how many are saved by general revelation? And who are they? And how do I know which ones are and which ones aren't? And how would we know? You know, if some are saved by general revelation, and I ought to get all excited about trying to save the ones that have rejected it, my first question has to be, did you reject general revelation? Now, that's an odd gospel presentation, isn't it? You know, did you did you reject creation? I mean, that would start the gospel at this. Do you believe there is a God? Well, how are most people going to say? Yes. Do you have faith? You know, just, just general faith? What are most people going to say? Yes. Okay, well, I'm going to have to find someone that doesn't believe God or says, oh, yeah, I think there's a God, but I'm suppressing what he is by my unrighteous living. Well, who's going to say that? You know, it's, it's just it's craziness to me. So it begs the question. Look in your notes. Here's the options for the inclusivists. If many are saved by general revelation, which I would put forth to you, most who hold that position believe that many are saved through that. That's why they believe in it. That's why they're so adamant. They want as many people saved as possible by any means possible. So general revelation will save many. Now, if it saves many, then few need missions and the motivation is small, right? If many are saved by general revelation, if most of the people, Jordan, in the Philippines are already saved through through general revelation, then the number that you, of those young people you're going there to reach is very small, and I think we need to decrease the amount of money we're giving to you because you don't have as big a job to do. What do you think of that? Oh, okay, okay, okay. He doesn't want to be on tape here. No, he said no, that's bad. Okay, number two. If, if few are saved, which is what this... In, this particular inclusivist is arguing, if few are saved by general revelation, then many need missions and the motivation is greater. I'll grant him that. The motivation is greater. But there's a third option, isn't there? And it's this. If none are saved by general revelation, then all need missions and the motivation is the greatest. Now, the question is this, not what this inclusivist thinks, Not what I think, not what Jordan thinks, not what any of it thinks. What does God say to the question of how many are saved by general revelation? What does he say in Romans 1? None. And isn't that interesting that in the book of Romans, which actually is a missionary prayer letter, Romans 1 and Romans 16 begins and ends with missions. This isn't a theology, a book on just abstract theology like many see it. It's a missionary's heart. And he says, look, Romans 1 through 3, no one is saved by general revelation. All need missions. Therefore, the need is great. So, Romans, help me get to Spain. Because apart from hearing about Jesus, they won't be saved. That is the message of Romans. Now, I want to show you this just because I saw this a couple months ago, and I was bound and determined to get it into this series somewhere, and now this is the last one, so it's going to fit here. Here is the typical, here's the typical response of the lost to God's creation. See if we, what do we do? Here, turn it on. Okay, you'll get it, you'll get it. It's on. Okay, you got it? All right, it's coming on. It goes dead on. Let's give Audra a hand. Isn't she great? 
getting greater by the moment. All right, hit computer one. All right, here we go. How many? Whoa, that's a full rainbow. All the way. Double rainbow. Oh my god. It's a double rainbow all the way. Whoa, that's so intense. Whoa, man. Whoa! Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! Whoa! Oh! Wow! Woo! Yeah! Oh my! Oh my! Oh my God! Look at that! It's starting to even look like a triple rainbow. Oh my god, it's full on double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my god. Oh my god. What does this mean? Oh. Oh my god. Oh. Oh god. It's so bright. Oh my god. It's so bright and vivid. Oh. 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 It's so beautiful. <laughs> the question we must ask is what does that mean what does that mean now listen that is classic that is classic that thing went viral it's like the number three 
YouTube in all of 2010. Jimmy Kimmel saw it and uh, tweeted it on July 4th weekend. And I think there's, I don't know what's on there, I think like uh, 250 billion views. Hungry Bear, that's the guy's name. Doesn't surprise you, I know. Hungry Bear is an awesome evangelist for inclusion. In other words, over 200 million. He witnessed to 200 million people of what? Of the glory of God. Why is it that when we see something just like Hungry Bear, we say, why is it when tragedy strikes on 9-11, people covered their mouth and said, oh my God? Because we know. We know. And here's the sad thing. And I'm not picking on this guy. He's not here to defend himself. I'm not, but I'm saying this. I mean, I researched. I saw him on Kimmel, interviewed him. You know, the guy doesn't believe in Christ. He's not worshiping what he worshiped that was meant but but stop for a moment showed us what real worship is how many of us who who know the creator who made that he said that his video caught only 40 30 20% of the vividness And you know that as well as I. When we go to photograph creation in awe and beauty, it comes out flat and two-dimensional. Now, he also said that the point where he was weeping, he had gotten knocked down by the rainbow rays. Okay, I understand who we're... I understand. I understand that. Okay? Hungry bear. But here's my point. He modeled... Listen... Before we, this message isn't to put down the lost who, who you know, like this. It, it's a rebuke to us who know the true wonders and glory of God. When have you been so overwhelmed with the wonders and glories of your, this is Christmas. And have we taken any time to weep and to laugh and to just express to everyone the glories of my Savior. Oh, my God, Jesus has come. He's so wonderful. He's so beautiful. He saved me when I didn't deserve it. He'll save you. Oh, oh. And yet that's, I mean, you see, he was thankful and he worshiped. And yet he didn't worship the the one who was speaking to him. And how ironic that it's a which was God's gracious promise, having destroyed the entire planet except for eight people. I won't do it that way again. Listen, watching that, I don't sit there and go, oh, Hungry Bear saved. I'll go witness to someone else. No, what I want to do is email Hungry Bear and say, know the one who so enraptured you for an hour and now has enabled you to speak billions. And now all we got is an iTunes double rainbow song and double rainbow team. Hey, I don't think inclusivism is where we're going to find 
answer. Turn to So the answer is this. Does inclusivism renew our commitment to reach every individual? My answer from the Bible would be no. God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, are the judge and gracious Savior who determine who is saved, how many are saved, and how they are saved. It's our responsibility to reach and preach to all peoples without distinction. Turn your Bibles to Acts 17. In Acts 17, we have an example of Paul coming to the Athenians, Greek people who were intelligent, who studied the stars, who studied general revelation, some of the wisest people on the planet at that time. And yet for all their wisdom and all their sincerity and all their religiosity, they still were worshiping idols and particularly one idol who had the name the unknown God. And notice what he says to them in verse 22 of Acts 17. He preaches the gospel, even though they were very aware of general revelation and they were very religious. Then Paul stood in the midst of the area. Uh, oh, I practice this. Yes, this. Yes, exactly. And said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Therefore, you are already saved and I will move on to a more needy people. No. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And if you jump back to verse 16, he says when he saw all this idolatry, he wasn't encouraged that said, hey, there's saved people here who just need to know Jesus. It says in verse 16, his spirit was provoked as he saw a people suppressing knowledge of God and substituting him for false gods. There he, therefore, he says, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, and yet they had created temples and idols made with hands. And were, He's not saying you know him through what you're doing. He starts at creation, but he goes to special revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, look, we have a common starting point. You've looked at the heavens, but you've drawn the wrong conclusions. You're worshiping in the wrong way. Nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. You should know this from creation, he's saying, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things and pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What he's saying is God's created all this so that you would look for him. The problem is you're trying to find him and you're not finding him. He's right with you, not way far away. He's the creator. He's all around you. So that uh, for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He's drawing from general revelation. He's drawing from the culture. He's drawing from creation, but that's not sufficient. Heading them to Jesus Christ. So he says, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commends all men everywhere to what? Repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by the man whom he has ordained or chosen or selected. He has given assurance of this to all by raising from his, from the dead. Verse 30 through 31 is not known apart from the preaching of the gospel. It is the preaching of the gospel. It's not known from general revelation. He started with it. He led them through it. And he said, here's the right conclusion. No. And he preached the gospel without distinction. Look at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what did they do? Some mocked. While others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. There's the three responses you'll always get to the gospel. Some will mock you. Some will reject you. But some will say, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that, but I'm willing to hear you more. And then some will believe. But folks, they'll never, you'll never see those three responses if you don't share the gospel with them. And so that brings us to number three. Does inclusivism broaden our understanding of evangelism in such a way that it, that it motivates missional living? Does it broaden our understanding? Here's what the inclusivist would say. Listen, you're too narrow in your thinking about evangelism. You think evangelism is just about getting people out of hell. Well, well, what they say is we have a broader view of evangelism. We know many people are already out of hell. They're already saved even though they haven't heard. But we ought to witness to them because there's more to know than just getting out of hell. Now, is that true? There is more to the Christian life than escaping hell. But can you, can you enjoy those other things without escaping hell? See, they separate those into two things. You can get saved by general revelation. You can escape hell, but you still need to hear about the, all the enjoy the benefits of Christ. So we still need to evangelize people. Well, I would, I would say from the Bible that you can't separate those two. So the answer here would be no. No, it doesn't broaden our understanding. Because escape from eternal death is part of our motivation for missional living. But to escape eternal life is also to enjoy, or I'm, I'm sorry, to escape eternal death is also to enjoy eternal life. You can't escape, you can't separate those two things. So the word there you want is and. And. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? We're going to have to end it here on that. But does that make, here's the point. It is legitimate, folks, to be motivated to share the gospel because you want people not to be in hell. That is just as important and just as loving as saying you want them to know God because here's the thing. You can't enjoy the benefits of eternal life unless you escape the curse of eternal death. But here's what the inclusivists want you to be motivated by. There's millions of people out there who are already saved without Christ. They're already not going to hell. But now get excited because you can share with them greater benefits in Christ. Well, you know what? If they already got the, the you know, if they have already escaped hell, we can wait and get to them later. We can wait. There's more important. Th I've got things here at home I've got to do. But if they will never enjoy the benefit without escaping the curse and they're all headed for the curse, 
then I ought to be super, super motivated to share with them both. There is no doubt, listen, there is no doubt that sometimes we reduce evangelism to getting a free fire insurance policy, right? Make this decision, get out of hell, move on to the next person. But just because we do that doesn't make the fire any less real. What we should be doing is saying, look, you're on death row headed for eternal execution, but I can set you free. But more than that, God can give you release from jail and be a law-abiding citizen that has no past record. That's what we're praying. That's what we're... So let's pray. Father, we come and... uh, Wow. We have all the motivation in the world this Christmas. Motivated for mission. Motivated to Lord, this next week, we're going to have fun with family, friends. But we're going to have opportunities to share the good news. We're going to have opportunities to witness. And now we've got a new year coming. Lord, could we once again be committed again to share the good news? that you don't have to go to hell when you but more than that, have eternal life right now. I pray that we'll all pray about this, think about it, and be open to it, that, Lord, you'll use us in a great and mighty way.